This is a, a very timely episode. Today we're going to be talking about the war in Mexico. There has been a war in Mexico. I've talked about it before. A lot of people have been talking about it, but it's not really out there in the mainstream media until last week when El Chapo's son was arrested and really a small scale war broke out. 29 people dead, El Chapo's son in custody, and the violence continues. So today I wanted to bring in uh, two really great guys. Two friends, Toby Harden is going to be co-hosting. You've all known Toby from the show. You've you've seen his written work. He's an excellent author and just a good dude. And my other friend, Doug Sentry. And we all know Doug from my me always talking about split decisions with <laughs> iced tea. I mean, you can't really get a little bit hunting El Chapo iced tea. Eh, it's a little bit different. But today we're going to talk about Toby's book, not Toby's book, but Doug's book, Hunting El Chapo. <laughs> Talk about mine if you like. And we'll talk about what talk about everything. We'll talk about Toby's book too. <laughs> but yeah, we'll we'll definitely throw in some stuff about Toby's book because I want to know about how you both do your research when it comes to getting these topics. Because they're I love nonfiction. That's why I kind of like having both of you on at the same time. So Doug, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me. And thanks for El Chapo, you know, was convicted uh, 2019, but this this business with his son brings it all back front and center again. And I got a bunch of calls from Canadian media, U.S. media saying, who is this guy Raton? Who is Mouse? People want co context on this world because it's just bafflingly, there's too many players, there's too many names, and nobody really understands exactly what's going on. So hopefully I can I can distill that into a, in a bite-sized portion for <laughs> your listeners. Well, we might as well ask, who is he? Let's talk. Let's talk right off the bat. Who is El Chapo's son? And why is he such a factor? He's a 32-year-old. His name is Ovidio Guzman Lopez. So El Chapo has dozens of kids. He had he had multiple wives, and he would. It was very interesting. The DEA agent I worked with, Drew Hogan, there's a line in the book where he and a Homeland Security guy, Homeland Security Investigation, say, "Hey, how many kids does Chapo have?" Nobody knows. You might be living next door to one. You have no idea. He he definitely had three wives. He never divorced them. So Ovidio is uh, Raton, which just means mouse. Ovidio, he has a brother. Um, so there's Ivan, there's Edgar, who was murdered. But what it comes down to is there are four key sons, four uh, crucial sons of all the children who really were groomed into the drug trafficking business. And in those years that Chapo was really living in interconnected, I call it like gerbil, you know, the, the little safe houses that were connected by bathtub tunnels. Uh, it's in all the line sheets. It's in all the intercepts. He's constantly contacting Raton, get the 10,000 to so-and-so make sure that this, he needed his sons to be out there doing the day to day because he really didn't leave his little self-contained world there. So Raton, um, the mouse is 32. He's a, a younger, what we would call narco junior. Right. So the, the original generation, those guys everybody's seen on Netflix, Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo, Chapo is of that generation. Mayo Zambada is of that generation. No, these guys are the narco juniors. They sometimes say los menores, the, the young the youngsters. They don't have the skills. They don't have the first of all, they're on social media. They have a social media presence. Um, in hunting El Chapo, one line that tells you what what 
uh, Rathton Ovidio was up to. Chapo was driving around Culiacan when he did leave his complex in a Volkswagen Jetta. Doesn't sound too flashy. It had level four armor or whatever the highest level of armor you can get. And um, so Drew, the D agent, and uh, John, the the HSI agent, they end up commandeering because they raided his house. And they said, man, he had he had souped up the engine because the Jetta was so heavy with all that body armor. But yet it still looked like a Jetta. And he would be, he would just berate his sons. Why are you driving around in a McLaren? Like, and what's with the Bugattis? And they were up, so they would, it's a good way to money launder, by the way. You know, you buy expensive luxury cars and then you flip them. But yeah, they were just flossing all around Culiacan, flossing their wealth, flossing their power. There's videos of guys, not Chapo's sons, but his nephew, just blasting off bullets in a nightclub in Culiacan with no consequences. And to say it very simply for an American, if you go back and you look at those movies, and they're very factual, about Al Capone's Chicago in the 20s. Capone controlled who was the mayor. Control, Capone didn't get arrested unless they had to throw the police some bones now and then and, and have some bootlegging busts, right? That's Sinaloa. That's not all of Mexico, but Sinaloa is in the grip of organized crime. So what happened in 2019? They they nabbed him. They had him in a safe house and 700 gunmen strong came out. You know, they outshot it with the police. And the president of Mexico basically said, well, let him go to avoid further bloodshed. It has since come out that the cartel gunmen were like, we will blow up the houses where some of your families live. You know, you really got it's let's call it narco terrorism, right? So that was 2019. He escaped. Joe Biden's down there now today. Pierre Trudeau. I notice it's all spin and PR. Ovidio, sure, he's in cocaine, methamphetamine. They're very diverse, the Mexican cartels. But what I saw in a lot of the headlines, Washington Post, was fentanyl, fentanyl kingpin, fentanyl mastermind. He's 32. What is the big issue that everybody in North America is talking? Fentanyl overdoses. Prince, Tom Petty. I mean, it's affecting all these. So you're wondering, where's this fentanyl coming from? It's true. They get the precursor drugs in from China, and there are major labs, and he was involved in that. So I see this arrest as, first of all, maybe Biden's people called up and said, hey, what's going on in Sinaloa? Do you have control of that state? The president has to say, yes, I do. Hey, make a bust of a major fentanyl producer in time for the North American summit and say, you know, that epidemic that has been just horrifying suburban parents. Well, we got one of the main guys. It will not do anything to flow the slow, the flow, sorry, slow the flow. That's hard to say. Slow the flow of methamphetamine and fentanyl. It, it's like a Pez dispenser, right? The, or, or DEA and cops like yourself will always say it's, 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 a, it's whack-a-mole when you're with your kids in the whack-a-mole. A video's down. The, the flow will be picked up by somebody else, but it is a really good, um, photo op news conference statement to say we got him. And what why it got so violent at the airport is because they immediately got him into a plane to get him out of Sinaloa, which they control, and over to Ciudad de Mexico, to Mexico City. And he's right now in Altaplano, the maximum security prison, which his father tumbled out of, of course, but uh, that's another story. But once they have him in Mexico City, they can't, they can't really help him and they can't touch him. So, and I, although a judge ruled he's not going to be extradited, the thing that the narcos all worldwide, Colombia, Mexico, fear is extradition to U.S. justice because they know they can't bribe the system the way they can. Mm. You know, it's as simple as an economy of scale. I always say, think about what a cop makes in Sinaloa or a prison guard in Altiplano prison. 
And think of the tens of millions that these guys can offer. You can't do that in Florence Supermax. You could if you had billions, but the amount of money it would take to bribe a, a, a high-ranking prison official in the United States, you'd have to set him up on an island somewhere for life with billions of dollars. It's a, a few hundred thousand dollars is not going to cut it. But in Mexico, they can corrupt the system. So I suspect he'll be extradited. He's already under several indictments. He's 32. He has not played smart. As I said, you can find social media posts where they're flossing and stuff. So, yeah, he'll be extradited, but he will change nothing in the ongoing stream of supply and demand, which we, the American Canadian consumer, are the demand. And as long as partiers and and I feel bad for the fentanyl people. A lot of these people are just looking for to reduce pain and they think they're getting, you know, they get street level, but it's fentanyl, which is a hundred times stronger than what they want in the OD. So, yeah. So that's one of the reasons, but I also, you know, if you, if you shoot it out with cops, you're a cop, you're a retired cop, you shoot it out with the cops and you get away with it. It's kind of what John Gotti did. You Jake, you rigged the jury. They're not going to let that go. It may take three years until they finally catch you again. But that was a thorn in their side. And I'm sure the behind the scenes that the, the Biden people, they, they have been probably asking, hey, do you have control? Do you got a control on that nut job situation where you had shootings in the streets? So, so you think they in were, essence, you think they were watching him and they just moved to, t- to time it for Biden's visit? Well, they said it was six months in planning. No, I don't think they moved, timed it to Biden's visit. I think he was captured uh, they had to come in with force. Usually it's Seymour, which is the Mexican Marines. This seemed to be, I mean, there were Black Hawk, helipo- Black Hawk helicopters because the gunmen have 50 caliber machine guns and they were shooting at, I mean, I what I'm suspecting, and I don't have all the, the intel, they were trying to stop him from getting to the airport. I mean, there's no reason to shoot up an Aeromexico flight. They were probably trying to get to the, if they could keep him from getting onto that plane, Keep him in Sinaloa State, then they can hide him, and they can. Mm. But, um, but the timing is certainly, how shall we say it, fortuitous. Yeah, to a big yeah. North American summit where I'm sure the issue of Mexican drugs crossing the border will come up. So it's nice to have, boom, you know, you guys who've written a lot about the agency and the, and the it, a lot of these things are press releases. I mean, they really are. The prosecutor gets to announce, look who I caught. Was, was he not, sort of? Was he in sort of plain sight or was he uh, undercover? Do we know how they, they they got him? I mean, presumably he's got a lot of protection around him. They all do. Uh, Chapo, every, everybody knew. So the thing is, once Drew, in our book, once once they knew which safe houses El Chapo was in, they could have. But you had not, until Drew and these guys went in 2014 into Culiacan, no one had tried to do a capture op, op there. Not so much for the fear of a shootout per se, as what they call halcones, hawks. On every street corner, they have eyes. So, And they would find that the minute a helicopter left the Samar base on Baja, California, oh, immediately everybody, all the alerts would be up. Um, not quite sure if, they, if it was a pre-dawn raid, as these usually are, but uh, I don't think he slipped up as much as, I don't think these guys are careful. Chapo was very careful never to emerge from sight. And if you heard, you know, if you really think about it, El Chapo never had a massive shootout with the Mexican military. You know why? Because he bribed them all. He bribed up to generals. He he understood, you know, that famous Plato Plomo, like, is it you want the silver or you want the lead? You know, that's that. Well, he would always go with silver. It was better for business. He had the money. So you never heard about him. Now, I think these young guys, 
either they don't have the savvy and the pol political connections yet to know exactly who to bribe, or maybe they've been watching too much Xbox, just thinking, yeah, you can shoot it out with everybody. I mean, you didn't hear Chapo doing that. He was very, very loath to use wide-scale violence because it doesn't end well. You cannot be a high-profile shoot-em-up gangster for long, even in the U.S. Bonnie and Clyde, you know, these people don't have long reigns once they're out there being that crazy. You know, you have to be in the shadows, which Chapo was very good at. And the others like Mayo uh, Zambada and Caro uh, uh, Quintero, I mean, the old school guys knew, make your money, don't flash it, stay stay hidden somewhere. Because as long as you're in those mountains of Sinaloa, you're providing so much infrastructure, the schools, and that the people don't want to turn you in. That was the same with Escobar when he got to Medellin. The people there loved him. He was providing much more services than than the corrupted government. But I don't know. We'll, we'll find out how long they were really on him. I suspect, based on what I know, Homeland Security was, is up on their phones. I mean, the amount of stuff we couldn't put in Hunting El Chapo about drones. You know, we would have stuff like Chapo knew. There was weird stuff and weird things going on in the air of Oculiacan. And I would say, so Drew goes, yeah, well, it's drones. And then when we went to write the book, he goes, that's not been cleared. Can you call it high <laughs> altitude surveillance? Like well, it. what different? Goes, well, that you know, that could be a satellite. That could, but yeah, I mean, there was very, very elite level, uh, the highest level homeland security, and I'm sure military stuff had his whereabouts. It's just, can we go catch him safely? And not wanting a repeat of a massive shootout, which, I mean, let's call it what it is. It's a human rights crisis for those people in Sinaloa because – what percentage are narcos? A, a lot of people go to work in hotels and go to work at airports and they don't want to be terrorized by these thugs. So I like to even, I don't even want to call it narco trafficking. It's narco terrorism. It really is. It's terrorizing the, the vast majority of the people there that just want to get on with their lives and not be extorted or be, you know, have burning buses on the way to <laughs> the gas station. This is really, a, it's, it's a human rights crisis for Mexico as well as a drug addiction crisis for our our countries, Canada and the U.S., right? You know, I'm glad you brought up that word addiction, man. A lot of people look at it as we got to fight. the. You know, I'm, I'm like a child of the 70s and 80s, you know, the whole war on drugs, and we got to fight it. We got to use everything we have to fight this war, this, this war, which really is a war against addiction as well, but we never look at it as the addiction aspect as yeah. well. You brought up the fentanyl. A lot of people want pain relief. A lot of people have pain, and they can't go to the doctor, and they use what they can. It's not just the fentanyl crisis. Everybody wants to get high. A lot of people literally have real pain. When I was, I was researching. Sorry, I was just I was researching yeah, to understand. What the Fentanyl was developed in the 60s by an actual lab in, in, in Switzerland, I believe. But, but it is so extremely potent. It's an opioid uh, derivative but or an opioid ex exponentially stronger than heroin or morphine. But I was looking at, well, who OD'd of it recently? Tom Petty, uh, Prince. And it was all, oh, my knees hurt. And maybe they can't get the supply anymore. I think Prince got some stuff off label and probably thought it was oxycona and it was fentanyl. And it was, these are inadvertent ODs. But yeah, it's the addiction crisis that we have. Uh, I said to somebody on one of our interviews recently, I was like, it's not like this is an iPhone 14 that they're, sh they're shoving it. Hey, you got to get this. It's not It's a demand that exists in our pain ridden culture for opioids or for stimulants. Um, I mean, the day after this happened, I saw a bartender and I said, well, how's it going, Brad? Well, 
call him Brad. Brad. Oh, I'm not drinking anymore. Well, why aren't you drinking anymore, Brad? You just had New Year's Eve. Goes, yeah, because I, I went on a three day coke bender and haven't slept. And I'm, I said that had nothing to do with the booze. But there's cocaine everywhere, recreationally, Wall Street, lawyers, and then there's this pain addiction crisis. You know, and I'm sure you've covered it as well. Yeah. A lot of the kids get into it because mom and dad have a legit prescription for real pain and they sample it. And then pretty soon, well, they can't get their mom and dads anymore. Hey, some guy on the street selling this stuff. And they just don't have the conception that fentanyl is so much stronger than what they expect. But yes, the Mexicans are very, very instrumental in producing it. They get the precursor. They have found some super labs down there. So, but I'm sure they're saying that classic drug dealer rationalization. Hey, if I'm not supplying it, somebody is, you know, classic, classic drug dealer rationalization all time is, well, why are you selling the drugs? Well, if I don't sell it, somebody else will. My kids got to eat. They always rationalize it like there is a demand out there and I am supplying it. But yeah, it's our pain. It's our pain or our numb. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how much the addiction went up during COVID and the lockdowns. I know alcohol sales went up late. So we have to look in the mirror at our needs before we look at the supplier's uh, they're not really pushing it on us. Let's put it that way, right? And uh, tell me, Chapo's in Florence Supermax, correct? Mm -hmm. What's life like for him there? Does he have any contact with the outside world? Is there any way he is he in touch with his his sons, with his empire? Well, they they cannot visit because they're not citizens. His wife technically could visit because she's a u.s citizen but she got herself locked up and then so as far as i know he's kind of on the john Gotti 23 hour day lockdown yeah miserable little cell you get one hour of rec time probably alone uh gotta be a pretty unhappy man no i don't think he has any control anymore over his sons are running what is the vestiges of his empire yeah um had he so, so a lot of guys flipped. There was a very powerful guy who was named Damaso Lopez, who was a, a cop. Well, actually, a, a prison warden who helped him escape that first escape. He was high up in Chapo's and very educated guy. They used to call him um, Elik, like the, the licensed one, even though he wasn't a lawyer. So as long as Chapo had guys like that to do the talking for him with the politicians, but uh, Elik... Tommaso, he flipped and he's he gave evidence in a Washington courtroom. So everybody's kind of turned against him. And those $15 billion, I don't think anybody really believes he had that amount of liquid cash. So as they used to say, he's 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 getting buried under that prison, right? Like he's not coming home and he's got no juice. I don't think he can even get messages to his sons without I mean, you tell me, Jason, nothing's coming out of Florida Supermax that's not being monitored, right? No. And uh, then what kind of message are you going to get out there that's going to be about any substance? Right. Even I saw the videos of John Gotti John, dying of cancer and his, they made movies of his son, but even his son's face-to-face -face visits with him were completely recorded. So, you know, listen, man, you're doing 23 hour day, you know, the Amnesty International has made the point that some of these places are like human rights violations. I mean, these are the worst of the worst. They're scary guys. They're terrorists. They're, you know, the 9-11 mm -hmm. bombers and stuff. But yeah, you're in this very small cell, and I think you get one hour to exercise alone without contact. Uh, mules, meals are not communal, I don't think, but he might be able to. But, you know, I'm pretty sure they've been very careful not to have him on a, on a tier with any other Mexican or even Spanish-speaking people. So he's got to be going nuts. I mean, I would think it's 
life in solitary. And I think he got 400 plus years. So just imagine how you do that kind of time. I don't, hopefully he learns to read because he's illiterate, by the way. Maybe he can learn to read a few books. How old, is he, he? How old is he now? Uh, six, he was born in 57. So worth it out. he's in the 60s. Okay. He's not a young man. And uh, he could have lived out his life if he hadn't been so narcissistic and wanting to kind of meet with Keita Castillo and, and Sean Penn. And if he had just stayed in the shadows, no one would have caught him. It would have been really hard. Now, do you bring up, I didn't get a chance to read the whole book yet. And you know, one thing I have read is I've read your other books and I love them. And I want to know from both of you, you take uh, something that's nonfiction books are so much different. I mean, you can have creative control when you're doing like a, a fiction book thriller or something like that. But these books read like thrillers. They read like, you, you know what, you're going after it. So do you bring up the Sean Penn? In the end, oh, yeah, yeah. well, yeah, sure. Because what was interesting is that before that ever came about, El Chapo could see that people were profiting from his name and image. So he had a guy named Alex Cifuentes, who was a Colombian trafficker, uh, going out and meeting with prospective producers. He was trying to sell that he had a script written and he had his ex wife reading it. This is long before Chopin. And I remember, um, so Drew and his partner said, you know what, we should do an undercover sting. We'll pretend to be Hollywood producers and we're going to meet with them. But yeah, he was out there shopping a script, knowing that people probably saying this is this is bullshit. People are making money off my uh, my life. And of course, Netflix did and all that. So he was already out there doing that. Uh, and then, yeah, I get into the Sean Penn stuff. Of course, that was the second escape after he tunneled out of Altiplano. He then was stupid enough to meet. Well, not stupid. enough. He was narcissistic enough. That's his his fatal flaw is narcissism, like a lot of these criminals. Yeah, he had a high mountain meeting with Sean Penn, and he didn't know who the hell Sean Penn was. He just wanted to, he just wanted to have sex with Kate Castillo. She, she had said some nice tweets about him, and he was smitten with this. She comes from a very famous acting family. Her father was a Eric de Castillo from a different level of strata. In and and he's a campesino. He's like a farmer who barely went to school past the age of eight. So a girl, a woman like him, finding him, she said, "Oh, Chapo, use your power for good." He thought she wanted to sleep with him. And that was that whole meeting. And she brings along this raggedy, weird guy that he didn't know who the hell he was. He didn't know who Sean Penn was to save his life. And then Sean Penn, like, bogarts this interview out of him. And then they got, like, raided in the middle of it, right? So Sean Penn did not lead to the capture. They were already on him because I think he was on the loose for about six months after the – but, again, you tunnel out of a maximum, maximum security prison. They're not going to stop looking for you. So stop having meetings. I don't know why he just didn't go live in the – in the hills where he's very safe. <laughs> Nobody will turn him in in those in um, La Tuna where he's from up in the mountains. But yeah, we touch on that. It's he really wanted his story out there. He wanted his story told by him and, and for him to profit from it. Has he read the book? Chapo read the book. Do you know? Well, you said he's illiterate. So I can't think he's read any. Yeah, he can't uh, based. If you read the book, his text messaging even in Spanish, like he can't spell the word cocina, which is a kitchen. Mm -hmm. He spelled it, and this is an internet slang. He spelled it, instead of C-O-C-I-N-A, he spelled it K-O-S-Y-N-A. And I said to Drew, this is internet? He goes, no, he just, he has the weirdest spellings because he learned to spell phonetically. Mm. And they always had it, it was a kind of a tell. It's a really interesting moment. They could tell whether, whether one of his secretaries 
Secretarios was typing on the BlackBerry. And what they knew once he was on the run and in Mazatlan, they said, no, Chapo has the device in his hand because he's the only motherfucker that can't spell words like this, right? He couldn't spell the most basic things. Um, I assume somebody's told him. He's probably much more interested in the Netflix portrayal of him by Diego Luna. I think these guys are, they think the telenovela world and, you know, that's, uh, there's been a, in fact, after our book came out, I think there were four books about his trial. Like they yeah. just got flooded. So, you know, that's one thing read, I want to, you know, talk, speaking of like the four books come out, boom, there's a difference between you two and regular, like, you know, the, the guys who get ghostwriter, they can get a, a book out within like 30 days. It's something relevant, but it's kind of fluff. Now, Toby, you wrote First Casualty, which is an incredible, intense book, and I love it because, you know, you're really diving super deep into your topic. You're sitting, you're interviewing hundreds of hours with people. Doug, you're the same way. You're interviewing people. You're getting into there. And this is a question for Doug more than anything because, Toby, I, you know, when you get into some of your topics and stuff like that, a lot of it's happened in the past of the terrorism. Doug, your book, Hunting El Chapo, you're going with something that's like, a very like intense subject, but it's got a big network. And if you say uh, you, you paint El Chapo in an unflattering light, mm -hmm. do you ever have concerns about saying, Hey, you know what? If I put this in there and I'm putting my name on a cover of a book and Toby is the same way with you when, within journalism and everything else, when you're putting your name out there as the guy and you say something bad about an unflavored character, what is your concerns? And this goes into the whole journalism thing. Because I've always wondered that about law enforcement. You're going to put someone in jail and you're kind of like, eh, you know, I've had death threats. I've had security around my house. I've had all sorts of crap. But I want to know what it's like to be a journalist. And you don't have the resources to get security in. You know, it's, it's, kind of it's a very interesting question. And it affected me in two ways. Because while we were writing the book, first, I was going to write the book uh, just by myself about Drew Hogan. And then it changed for various reasons. But while we were writing it, he escaped. So then it was like, oh, my God, he's out. And, um, you know, whenever you write a book that's nonfiction, you go through a legal vetting with a very hot, you know, and you've, you think, ah, a guy that's actually accused of thousands of murders and drug driving, he must be libel proof. Like he can't. Well, it came out of trial, so we're not telling tales. But when he was stuck, this guy, all he did was micromanage his drug trafficking organization and have sex constantly. That's why they found Cialis. It was falsely reported to be Vi Viagra. It was Cialis. He had bottles of Cialis everywhere or, or, you know, tabs, but he would have sex all day long with preferably young prostitutes. And he would specify, he had a madam in Culiacan. He would specify that they'd be virgins. So I'm talking to Drew and, and he's like, nah, this was disgusting. We started to see these arrays and they were like 14 year olds, 15 year olds, maybe up in the mountains where he's from. That's not that weird, but I mean, we, it's disgusting. And the lawyer was reading it. And she said, well, how do you know they're 14? The lawyer for uh, Harper Collins. Well, I mean, we don't know they were 14, but he would say they must be. So she made us tone that down to say they look awfully young. <laughs> so we could. And then at his trial, it came out that, yes, he was having sex with underage women. Um, you know, your, your job is to tell the truth. But, you know, sometimes the, the legal department will get in there because I was actually saying, are you saying that he could sue us for saying he's having sex? He's having a, what's it called? A statutory rape. Yeah. And he's a murderer. Well, you could still libel a person saying he's a rapist and he didn't. So he had to tone that down a few times. But things like that did come out at trial. <sighs> you know, I, 
as a journalist, I asked Toby too, it's like you're, your job is to tell the truth. Generally, in our world, it's dangerous to be a journalist in Mexico, but in our world, yeah, I've written about the mafia. I've been threatened, bikers. <sighs> Once the book is out, they can't really do anything to you. They usually try to buffalo you and send you a threat while you're writing the book to, to influence how you might depict them. I've had that happen, but they don't generally come after the writer of a book unless you really make them sound. You know, somebody asked me this about, uh, I guess, about El Chapo or his sons. He said, are you, are you scared? And I said, why? I made him sound like a killer. He loves that. He's a killer. He's a wealthy drug driver. Now, if I'd said he was gay or if I'd said he was, a, yeah. you know, there's certain things. I'm sure it's same with Britain, like those guys, like the craze and the, oh, they're happy to be killers. And I, there's certain things you don't, you don't imply about them. Oh, he's a child molester. So I got, okay, yeah, yeah, I got, I got some feedback from, so my first book was Bandit Country about uh, the IRA and South Armagh, the border heartland. And I got some feedback about what, from one of the IRA men who didn't mind me stating the carried out about 40 murders, but uh, he was really upset that I described him as a womanizer. <laughs> his, <laughs> his wife wasn't happy. So, you know, can't win them all. Yeah, well, there's, and that's the thing. Like, I, I actually hang out with law enforcement, but also with gangsters. So I just wrote about this Russian mobster, right? And people ask, well, I said, but there's certain things. There's, you know, he's a killer. He's a drug dealer. He's been this. He's been that. But if I implied something, like in in Russian prisons, if you're called a petuch, that's your, you're the rooster, the passive homosexual. Like that is a killing offense. Yeah. There's jokes you do not make, or that you're a snitch, which means they call kozoila a goat. But if you, if you don't imply that, that you're a, a, a sitch or that you've been raped or the – by the way, the rapist is not he, – he, he still has status in prison, but the raped, they become the fallen. But, oh, hey, but if I say he's a killer, if I – I mean, he's happy with that stuff. It, it's a feather he's – he's got the skulls tattooed all over him, the, the amount of bodies he's done. So he's proud of that. So, yeah, but you got to know the code around gangsters and also not – how not to embarrass them. Yeah. That's the main thing. Yeah. There's a lot of pride and a lot of narcissism with, with narcissism with these guys. And I spent time, I'm, I'm not sure where you were in the UK, but like in the East End, I was, I was in Hackney. And I mean, it's the same thing with the, you guys call them villains, mm. you know? And I'd meet these guys that were harder than, you know why? Because they had glassing scars. You know what that is, Jason? Like you got a pint glass shoved in your face. And these were, it's not easy to get automatic weapons, but they had sawed off shotguns and they were bank robbers and, they're ah, the craze were nothing, you know. Out here in Notting Hill Gate, we were the best. <laughs> They're all bragging about their, and you could see their. They had the the cuts on their faces to show it, but yeah, there were certain things. You just don't cross certain rules and imply that they have done things that are not within the ethics of the gangster world, right? Yeah. yeah. Um. So, Doug, t- tell me, just go back to your your first book and how you got into writing and and what you did before that and how the first book. So it came about. Oh, my very first book. Yeah. Oh, okay. So Kingdom, I was, uh, is that right? Yeah. Street Kingdom. I'm, I'm hanging out in Brooklyn. I'm about 25 years old. I'm into hip hop and I'm hanging out with these guys. And what were you uh, doing work-wise? Were you a reporter? I was a freelance or? journalist. Yeah. I, I was, I had a, had a gig at a Jewish newspaper where I was writing. I would be interviewing like Leonard Nimoy, Mr. Spock. Oh, Mr. Spock, where did you get the Vulcan? Oh, that's the old... That's the sign for the, the the Kohen, the priestly caste. I took that because, you know, in the synagogue, we used to do that. So I'd have these cool interviews with, like, Jewish. And then I'd be, like, right, freelancing little, you know, music reviews, going to hip-hop shows. This is, like, the 90s in New York, which now everybody is 
Like I saw the first Wu-Tang show outside of Staten Island and I thought they were a gang of like 50 guys. I thought I was going to get trampled, but I'm hanging out with these guys. And one of them wanted to be a rapper. He was a gangster. He was a, a yardie. He was like, a, he was a Jamaican rude boy, but he was, he had a record deal and he brought me in like, no, you're the little Jewish guy. You, you can be my manager. I was like, I don't know anything about managing. So before I know it, I'm looking at paperwork and contracts and I'm dealing with these other Jewish guys who own the studio. It went on for about five years and I was in gunfights, like crazy, not not personally, but I like guns were po- pulled. So a friend of mine who was a journalist, said, uh, Jeffrey Goldberg, who's now the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, he says, he used to see me and he was like, it's really weird. You're like in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, Flatbush, Brooklyn. Don't they think you're, well, I had a goatee. They used to think I was Puerto Rican. I had the hat and, and they would say, guys would always ask if I was a cop, but then they would say, you know, man. They, the guys I was with didn't hang out with cops, so they just assumed I was a Puerto Rican hip-hop kid, right? With the hoodie and the headphones and all that. Doesn't, not that much different from how I look now. But so Jeff goes, you should write a book about this. And I said, mm-hmm. about what? Just hanging out. You're hanging out with these guys. So I got an agent and I wrote it. And But the thing that made that work is that for three years out of the five years with this Franklin Avenue posse, I wasn't writing anything. I mean, I was observing. I was just kind of hanging out. It was so cool to see these guys – you know, people learned about it from the Eminem movie, like the freestyle battles. But I would just be on the street corner. They call a cipher. And these guys would just be like going, to, you know, going at it with each other. And I would tell uh, I remember this editor of mine at the New York Times, she saw Eight Mile. And she said, but that's made up. I said, what do you mean? The way they can just make stuff up. I said, no, they're coming off the dome. You should see it on Brooklyn. It's a cipher. They go around in a circle. She goes, well, then these guys are like modern day Shakespeare's. And I said, yeah, they're just verbally. They could just spin poetry. So I, I connected on that level because I was just amazed to see the real hip-hop of the 90s. And I saw all those guys kind of rising up, you know, Suge Knight. I met Suge Knight at Biggie. It was kind of a fascinating period. So we got a good book deal from uh, Warner Books, which is part of Hachette. But it was a very strange book in that I didn't plan to write it. <laughs> and I sometimes think the best things that happen for people um, – you know, you don't go infiltrate a gang, you know, a firm of soccer hooligans. You're just part of them, and then maybe you write about it. Mm-hmm. You can't come to these worlds with this microphone or this nosy attitude. You just got to be that guy hanging out, smoking a joint now and again, you know. I wasn't ever good freestyle, but I could DJ a bit. So sometimes I would be the guy spinning the records, and I was just kind of hanging out. And hanging out is the best. Richard Price gave me a really – the great novels. Richard Price gave me a great um, – blurb for my book and he had written clockers he'd written and he he had access to cops in jersey city so he had written these really gritty granular books about the drug drug trafficking and all he did was kind of hang out so he said uh i forget what the blurb was but he said doug century writing this book put his ass online and he did the most valuable thing you can do as a writer he hung out Right. <laughs> like you just got so the you know the wire was created by David Simon hanging out with Cobb. you and you got to do it it's immersion now they call it immersion journalism mm-hmm. you just got to ride around with the cops you got to ride around with the drug deals you got to familiarize and there is some risk to doing that yes for sure but I think with a lot of these subcultures if you go in there with an agenda to find out what first of all people are going to want money from you. They're going to think you're profit and they're not going to trust you. So um, yeah, that was a bit of a fluke, but that led me to then writing a book with a NYPD uh, detective who had gone undercover in the mafia, which was called takedown. And that was a bestseller. And then I got this kind of niche where I, undercover guys would come to me and t- mm-hmm. I was telling this to Jason. It was like, 
Yeah, every undercover guy I met had the same PTSD, same paranoia, because you've been on deep cover in a biker gang, in the mob, in any number of criminal situations, and it it twists your brain. You've been lying to your wife and your family, and you're so successfully. I had one guy, his wife said they were getting divorced. He's so good at lying. How can I tell he's not lying to me when he says he loves me? I said, yeah, you can't. But anyway, then I got that niche where so I've read about four books about undercover and I really got used to, it's a very close to the criminal mind. These guys have to play so, authentic criminals. So, you know, do you pref- and- so do you prefer writing from the point of view of law enforcement or criminals? <laughs> the good guys or the bad guys? I mean, you know, or maybe there's a mix between the two sometimes. Well, when you really, like I did this book Under It Alone, Billy Queen went undercover in the in the Mongols, right? And he was acting like a criminal. The only thing he couldn't do was partake in violence or rape. But like... Sometimes there's a blend where they're doing both, and that's kind of cool. I think it's more fun to write from the criminal point of view because it's so transgressive. Law and order still has rules they have to follow. Like one of the things that happens when Drew and and, uh, his partner, they land. They're just there in the lion's den of Kuliakon landing in a helicopter with the Marines, and the Marines all have their machine guns. And then technically DEA is not supposed to be strapped. It's a big issue for Mexico. Can DEA carry weapons? And he, and he says to me, Doug, what do you think? I mean, we grabbed a couple pistols. But it's not like we're not going to be running around Culiacan like, you know, with our dicks in our hands. Now, technically, that became a controversy in Mexico because you're not supposed to be an American law enforcement officer. You're supposed to pass everything to the counterparts. So what interests me about law enforcement is what they can get away with and then or what they're told they can do and then what they actually have to do, you know, and. Yeah, sometimes the lines really blur. I did a book with an undercover guy was talking about working on the the China White back when Burma and, and Cambodia and all that. And he would say, in Thailand, it's the death penalty for traffickers. This DEA agent named Ed Fallis. And I said, so what would you do? He goes, we just turned it over to the counterparts and the counterparts and then we didn't ask questions. I said, well, what did the counterparts do? Well, they would drive a guy to a house where his wife and kids are inside. And they would say, tell us what you know, or that you're, you're going to watch your wife and kids burn to death in front of your very eyes. And I would say, can you see it? We're not supposed to see that. <laughs> but if we got the information that they needed. What, so what's really interesting is what law enforcement can do in the U.S. and what they have to do sometimes abroad, because it really crosses, you know, certain lines. But I think the criminal mind is really fascinating to people. I, I wouldn't want to work closely with like a, a serial killer. Or, you know, these kind of sexual predators. Yeah, I find that too disturbing. But gangsters, I find hanging out with gangsters really interesting because they often do the things that we all wish we could do. Uh, like I was telling somebody that that line in The Sopranos, if you've watched it, uh, people always ask, well, why are we so fascinated with these antisocial? I said, well, remember Tony's out with his best friend, Artie, and they're at a nice restaurant and some guy's wearing a baseball hat. Mm-hmm. And Artie's just and artist says, that burns my ass. Nice fancy restaurant. And that guy's got a baseball. And Tony just gets up and goes, take your hat off. I will not. They don't serve hot dogs here. They took the bleaches out two, two years ago. That's my hat. I'll wear it. And Tony just stands there breathing. <laughs> and finally, the guy takes his hat off. And then the guy's girlfriend looks at Tony. And Tony goes, how you doing? And I said, we all want to be that guy on some level that you don't have to call a cop. But there's some jerk disrespecting the rules of the place. And you... We all, I think, on some level, maybe not even conscious, yeah, it would be so cool to be that guy that can just go over and breathe and the guy scares the crap out of it. And they happen to wear nice suits. You know, it's the same reason that 
you know, over in London, I, I have a lot of family in London. Like in the 60s, the craze, they were always really well dressed. Frank Sinatra, Sonny Liston. I mean, why do you, these are so sociopathic killers? They're very violent, horrible men. But yet the celebrities, there's something about the mafia culture, Irish gangsters to a point. It's just you're you feel like you're around the danger, but they're still clean cut enough that they're not. I don't I don't feel like I'm hanging out with the Crips, you know? <laughs> I feel like I'm still hanging around with guys who like could charm their anyway. You're, but, you're, I think that that danger, that danger is addicting, that adrenaline. That is one thing, like I'm retiring here in a few weeks. That is one thing that I will miss is having that adrenaline. And I'm sure the gangsters have that same adrenaline that law enforcement does. Like when they're doing deals, they get this this high. Yeah. And like the same thing with when you're going after someone, investigating them, you're putting the puzzles together. And it's the same thing with the gangsters. You're getting that power. You're getting this. You're putting it all together. It's just like the Wall Street people. You're getting a different type of adrenaline. Yeah. It's different injection of it. So it's, it's there's a cool. there's a absolute uh, what I've noticed in gangsters. They just didn't get that gene for delayed gratification. So it's like I want it and I want it now. And yeah, planning to get it eight months from now is not as exciting as just let's do this. But also, I had some really interesting insights because I know some made. There's a made guy. I won't really say. Well, they call him Patty Boy. So that's he's a made guy in the banana crime family. He did a murder and he's on lifetime parole. So, but anyway, he has nice barbecues and he invites me over. I know his wife really well. <laughs> Funniest one was I bring my daughter to his house, a very beautiful house. And, you know, he's, I think he's now a captain in the family, but he goes, Doug, my daughter Miranda's uh, applying to a university. And I know you're in the writing thing. Could, do you mind coming over and writing a letter uh, of recommendation? Bring your laptop. So I come over. Miranda's sweet as can be. She's a graphic artist, 16, you know. And then while I'm writing, Patty, Patty goes, uh, he's, you know, Sunday in Italian house. He's cooking up the chicken parmesan and everything like a million, you know. And he goes, Doug, while you're, while you're there, I could use another letter of recommendation for my judge, you know, because that thing's coming up again, right? <laughs> okay, now I've got the letter of recommendation. But it was so funny because The Sopranos was just ending around then. And I remember saying to Pat, so Pat, what do you think of the?" And he goes, can't watch those. They make, make us look like a bunch of gabons. I said, well, what do you mean? Like, because of the Here's what he objected to. And when we're outside in his patio with his barbecues, he's like, motherfuck this, Doug. But inside the house, he goes, Doug, you've been around me a, a lot now. You ever see me curse like that in front of my wife and kids? I said, no, actually, no, you never do. Yeah, exactly. We have a certain way to act. I, I see this clown. He's, he's walking around in a bathrobe. He's cursing in front of his wife. That's what offended him. He was like, we don't disrespect our wives and children that way. It makes us look like, is that the word, Gabon? Like a, like a moron. Yeah. So he didn't mind the shooting and the killing and the <laughs> taking over the garbage rackets. And all that was, oh, that's pretty accurate. But I don't curse in front of my wife. <laughs> uh, so, Doc, how, how did you end up in the U.S.? I mean, I obviously am not, you can tell from my accent, um, I'm not from here. I got sent over by a newspaper in the late 90s. But uh, you went to Princeton, but you grew up in Calgary. Is that right? Yeah, but I'm, see, Canadians, we're like double agents. You know, <laughs> right. we're, we, you have enough of an accent. So to be technically, I'm a dual citizen. My mother was born in Coney Island, Brooklyn. My dad was born uh, in Chicago. Okay. I have two brothers that were born in Salt Lake City and Oklahoma. My dad was in the oil business and getting transferred. He got transferred to the oil and gas capital of Canada, which is Calgary. I was born there. And then they discovered how nice my dad always says, having grown up in Chicago where the typical cop was on the take and you were kind of afraid like to. My dad got his driver's license in Chicago the following way. It was the Chicago way. You showed up. My dad didn't write a test. He goes, I went with one of my dad's friends, went down to the precinct, you know, Captain so-and-so O'Reilly. 
Where, where's mine? Oh, they had a box of ties for him. And suddenly my dad's got a driver's license because that was the Chicago one. He says, we moved to Canada in 1958 and I would see these Dudley Do-Right kind of cops like helping little old ladies across the street. He said, said in, the, in, in Chicago, you didn't want to meet a cop or talk to him because he might shake you down. So they liked the quality of life in Canada. I was born here, raised here. But then, yeah, I got into Princeton and went down there. And where do you, where, where do you want to become a writer? New York. Right. Um, so... And I kind of code shift. My daughter will say, now you sound a little more Canadian. Now you're calling your mother mom. When you're in America, you call her ma. I go, okay, well, we have our little. But it's not like Brits and Americans where you really tell the difference. A lot yeah. of us Canadians, like if I tell somebody, do you know Captain Kirk? You know, you know, he's William Shatner's Canadian Jew from Montreal. Yeah. Jim Carrey or, well, everybody knows like Drake. Scotty was Canadian as well. Yeah, there's. Hollywood is just filled with these Canadians that are guys like Jim Carrey or, or um, Mike Myers that they just lose enough of it that nobody, Seth Rogen, you know, it's like people stop thinking he's Canadian. They just think he's the pothead. Right. So we have that very unique Australians sound different from Kiwis, you know, Irishmen sound different from Englishmen. Canadians. We can pass. We yeah. can just, we just stop saying mom and stop saying oat in a boat and stuff. And we can, <laughs> but, but honestly, I can't, like, I can't tell them a Canadian accent from a there you go. New York accent. So, yeah. well, you, you can, if you notice, we would say things like an American will say process. We'll say process. Okay. We'll that's say, British. we say, that's British, yeah, we yeah. say, there's a few and words that we, British, say, yeah. we say mom and we say process and we say uh, a few other things. We spell color with a UR, but uh, you lose it quickly. Like as soon as I got to Princeton, I had five, seven roommates from Miami, from this, and I, I didn't know how often I said, hey, you know, going to call my mom, eh? Hey, hey. So you, you get it teased out of you. Yeah. yeah and then you kind of get this neutral. Uh, there's a reason a lot of the newscasters, like Peter Jennings, there's once Canadians lose their little distinctive Canadian thing, it just is this flat, neutral accent that kind of doesn't sound Southern, doesn't sound New York, you know. So, but I love being both because. The two countries have so much in common. We have the largest unprotected border in the world. We are we're the best of friends. I mean, there's a ca Canadians think Americans really care about us a lot more than they do. Like Americans don't know much about Canada. They really think <laughs> you really think we have igloos and shit. <laughs> you don't. The, the, the Brits are the same way. They're always like the special relationship. And oh, you know, most Americans are like, yeah, we like you guys. You're always on, our, you know, on our side. You help help you out. But you know, we're not. They're, they're, you know, Americans are not as into the Brits as the Brits, uh, you know. as you think, right? Well, America, I think it was uh, Justin Trudeau's dad said it, maybe Pierre. He said, Canada is like a, a, a mouse sleeping at the like the tail of an elephant, United States. Anytime the United States moves. So we, we know who's really in charge. We get all the programming and we even have, there's no American Thanksgiving here, but there still is Black Friday because all, Best Buy, all the stores here. So they have to have the Black Friday. <laughs> <laughs> but what's great is when you travel abroad, I always tell people, let's say we, because to a, to a Canadian now, I sound American because I'll come in and just say, hey, yo, what, you know, where's my beer? Oh my God. Can I get a please? Like they want you to say please and sorry so much more. I'm like, we don't have time for that shit in New York. Sorry. Can I get my coffee? Okay, oh, geez, you. New York. New York is just forget it. Like, what are you what are you looking at? What are you looking at? Okay, have a good day. <laughs> you but, see, I I went to college. So after the army, I went to college in Minnesota. So Minnesota is basically Canada. It's Canada. It's, it's you Canada. Sound exactly like like when I went there, I'm like, can I get a glass of water? And they're like, what? I'm like, what? Water. I'm like, because I still can't say I'm from Jersey. So it's like water. 
So yeah, what, what I love though, oh, I'll just ahead. tell you real quick though. Yeah. One of the great things about being dual, having two passports, is that you know you go to Holland or whatever, you just tell people you're Canadian. First of all, they love Canadians in Holland because during World War II there was a horrible. Uh, the Nazis had encircled Amsterdam. There was a famine, and the Canadians actually liberated it. But I just tell people, you know, when I'm abroad, I tell everybody I'm Canadian, and they say, "Why?" He goes, "I have never really met anybody who hates Canadians. They can hate Australians, actually. Australians are allowed." I don't think people have strong opinions about Canadians one way or the other. And Americans, I'm sorry to say, you know, there's anti-Americanism in many countries, so it's very safe to travel with a Canadian pin. And at the best, you might get somebody asking you about Drake. How's it? How's life like in the six? I said, nobody calls it the six. That's his thing. And it's like not nearly as cool as New York. So stop trying to think. <laughs> um, next step is I'm working on a book about a hopefully unambiguous hero uh, because all my last few books have had these complex, as my daughter would say, complex anti-heroes. A Russian gangster maybe with a heart of stone, but he's still a sociopath. So it's a, I have a story about some um, Jewish heroines, some uh, Jewish parachutists during World War II who died valiantly. And it's it's a well-known story among Jewish circles. But I told my agent, I, he said, how come nobody knows this story? I said, well, if you go to Jewish school or if you go to Israel, but they risked their lives. It was a badass. It was the the origins of what became the IDF paratrooper unit. But back in the 40s, they, they parted with the Brits. The Brits said, okay, well, you speak the languages of Yugoslavia and Romania. We'll, we'll train you to fly in and be SOE, which was uh, Churchill's special operations executive. So, yeah, it's a, it's a story of a really cool SOE operation that involved Jewish parachutists. And hopefully we'll sell it because I just – I want to write about good people instead of just criminals. So I think they, you have a – Where do they parachute into? Into Yugoslavia? Yeah. Tito's – they were – well, there was multiple missions. There was 37. Some went into uh, uh, Romania. Yeah. They were captured. Uh, the sick thing was that even though they had RAF uniforms and rank – uh, seven of them were treated as uh, Jews and went to, you know, Dachau and concentration camps. Seven are, were martyred and murdered by the Gestapo. Mm. But uh, the safe place to land was in Tito's Yugoslavia, and then they would cross into. They were really trying to save the Jews of Hungary. There were still a million Jews strong in Hungary. So, um, in many ways, but the Brits allowed them to do it because at that time, once they'd captured the boot of Italy, uh, they had Bari airfield. Yeah. The, the real target was these Ploesti oil fields of Romania. Hitler had one source of oil. And I didn't realize how many bombing missions. They lost, the Allies lost 5,400 aircraft. There was thousands of men downed in, in Eastern Europe who didn't speak the languages, who didn't, and some were escaped POWs. Yeah. So here in, Pal in Palestine, the mandate of Palestine, they realized, the Brits realized, wow, we have these really passionate fighters who speak Romanian and Slovakian. <laughs> Let's train them. They, the Jews wanted to train a thousand commandos and the Brits said, no, you'll turn against us after this. So they trained about 30. Uh, but yeah, they, they, it was safe to land into partisan controlled areas, but it was uh, being an SOE operative. You had a lifespan of about two weeks. You know, yeah. the, I love all the spy gadgets. Fascinating. You know, they, Fascinating yeah. I, I mean, that's, I don't know how well it's known in England, but like, you know, people know about, but SOE was once Hitler captured France Hitler, Hitler captured France. Churchill said, set Europe ablaze. And he basically authorized the Baker Street Irregulars. He's amazing. It was just like the original commandos, spycraft. They were like parachuting into France. And he was like, let's keep the war going, even though we don't have a front. So within that story, I have a Jewish angle. And 
and hopefully I'll hopefully I'll get a book deal. If not, maybe I'll sell it as a TV idea or something. But yeah, fascinating. Well, I, so uh, we should uh, keep in touch. I've been doing some research recently on uh, the OSS in in Yugoslavia, uh, who and they have joint teams with SOE, and so I'm just, yep. just starting to get into it. But it's just it's a world I knew almost nothing about. And it's just in, in, well, there's a really fascinating. I'm not going to touch on it, but there's a yeah. The OSS were there as well, especially in Slovakia. There was a Slovakia national uprising. And the OSS team, there's a fascinating story that I don't have time to get into. It was a guy named James Morton, was an AP correspondent. He embedded with the SO, uh, uh, SOS guys, the precursor to the CIA. They landed. They're on the ground. They got captured by Waffen-SS. And Joseph Morton was sent to, I think, uh, Matthausen. He's the only U.S. war correspondent who was killed in the Holocaust. And all he was doing was covering that. that because at that point, the Nazis were like, you're spies, you're spies, you're spies. Yeah. But, yeah, I would love to because this – um, I have access to some of the records in SOE, but it's uh, well, there's uh, a ton, ton of records in the National Archives here in College Park, Maryland, and there's um, and there's SOE archives in uh, in Kew in London, and uh, there's a lot of OSS stuff in the SOE archives, and vice versa. So, you if I can recommend one one book for you, if you haven't read it, it's called Between Silk and Cyanide. Um, uh, this guy named Leo Marx, his his um, his father owned a very – yeah, between Silk and Sanded, Leo Marx was the son of a very famous bookstore owner in London. They made a film called The 84 Charing Cross Road, Marx and Company. It was a great bookstore. And Leo Marx was a cryptographer, and uh, all these agents were parachuting into SOE agents. They had memorized poems, and that's how they developed their cipher. But under torture, you could give up your poem. So – he came up with this brilliant idea of printing one-time pads, little uh, one-time uses on silk, which was very rare, and you could sew it into the lining of your coat, and you could never hear it in a pat down. So he came up with that line because they were all issued these cyanide tablets. All so he said, he said to his commander, "Look, it's between silk and cyanide. You get me the silk." So it's a fantastic memoir. I think he calls it a, a cryptographer's war. It's very witty, and it's it's kind of shows all the politics because there was a rivalry between uh, the different intelligence agencies and who was going to get access and stuff, but he's a clever writer. So uh, Leo Marx and uh, between silk and cyanide, it's, it's got that wonderful British sense of humor too. It's like every line has a joke in it somehow. Oh, great. I'll <laughs> check it out. Okay. There we go, Doug. I appreciate you coming on and, and really talking about an awesome, timely topic. Definitely have to read hunting El Chapo. And one thing I do want to throw out, too, is uh, there might be a collaboration between Doug Sentry and Tobin Harden in the future. You never know. There we go. Um, there we go. Two incredible authors to just you're out there. And you're one thing about nonfiction that I love. It's history. We need more history. You could write you could watch a five minute YouTube video, but you're not getting the gist of what you get reading between the lines. Yeah. That is one thing I do want to shout out to Toby and Doug. I really want you to read his book first casually. It's It's one of the most well-planned out, well-thought-out, and well-written books about that first push into into Afghanistan to go hunt al-Qaeda. You know, we got attacked. The CIA said, boom, we're in it. So, so if I'm going to start with one of Toby's books, start with... I don't know. Let's ask Toby. Okay. Yeah, well, where, again, it's it? like, you know, when people ask you which is your favorite children, you know, you love them all in different ways. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, first casualty, definitely. Uh, okay let's, let's definitely start with that yeah i'll jump on that i love Thank i love you. reading about spy, spy craft and 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 what what veterans do i mean it's just 
it, we are outsourcing, at least the United States, uh, you know, the defense of the Republic to 1% of the volunteers. It's not like World War II where everybody had skin in the game. So right. we don't, a lot of us, we just read about these stories and say, God, you know what you guys did? Uh, three tours, four tiers, and you're all volunteers. You know, in these previous wars, like World War II, I mean, everybody was, my my grandfather was a, a warden who had to go make sure that the lights were off, you know? He was a 50-year-old man. Like, everybody had to do something. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, with military, and certainly with law enforcement, we're many of us, if you're upper middle class or whatever, you went to certain colleges, yeah. you just don't know anybody who's a cop. You don't know anybody who's in the military. It's just not in your sphere. So, yeah, I'll, I'll dig into that as soon as I... I'm going to be Googling it. <laughs> <The minute laughs> I get up. Thank you.